Hey, it's Joel. Before the podcast gets started, a quick note. Uh, I apologize. The audio is a little bit funky. I didn't realize that until I was putting it together. Uh, I hope that it doesn't detract from your enjoyment of the story of Joseph. Without further ado, let's get into it. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focused on Genesis chapter 39 through 44. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links to those uh, uh, subscription or those podcast apps are in the show notes if you'd like to take a look at them. And if questions come up during the course of your reading uh, this week or in, in the past few weeks, you can feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A-S-K, excuse me, capital A lowercase S-K hyphen capital O capital T. You can find that link in the show notes as well. Now, Genesis 39 through 44 are all one continuous narrative focused on Joseph and his relationship with his brothers. You may remember, of course, uh, earlier in Genesis that Joseph's brothers left him for dead, uh, or they were going to let leave him for dead, even kill him themselves. But they stumbled upon some Ishmaelites or Midianites, uh, and then they sold Joseph to them, with Judah being the one to sort of initiate the sale. And then they brought his uh, blood-soaked garment back to their father, suggesting that, well, maybe a wild animal killed him. Now, Joseph's relationship with his brothers, needless to say, is therefore a little bit strained. Uh, his brothers don't know that Joseph is still alive. And so a lot of this narrative will deal with how Joseph gets to where he is and then how he interacts with his brothers when they come down to Egypt looking for food. Now, in view with this narrative are our two main ideas that we're going to hit on a, a number of times. And those are the ideas of remembrance and recognition. To remember and, and to recognize, both of these words share, share a similar idea. When we break down each of these words, both mean to do something again. That prefix re, uh, like to retie your shoelaces. It means you've tied them once, you need to tie them again. To remember something is to make something a member again, to reassemble it, as it were. Um, literally to make something again a part of. To recognize is literally to be cognizant of something again, to think on something again. And remembering and recognizing, these are foundational building blocks of what it means to be human. We can remember and we can recognize. They're key terms also in the story of Joseph. You see, Joseph remembered and recognized his brothers while they failed to recognize him, remembering only what they had done to him. And I think that it's important for us to consider the ways in which we can remember 
in which we can recognize? How do we remember the covenant given to Abraham, the one which we've inherited in Jesus Christ? How do we take that covenant that, that God blesses us so that we may be a blessing to the world? How do we take that seriously? We are called to recognize the ways in which God has blessed us and wherever we can to use those blessings to bless others. Now, throughout the Joseph story, there's a ton of stewardship language that's repeated over and over again. If you look through the story looking for uh, how the, the scriptures talk about what has been given into Joseph's hand or how Joseph cared for this household or the blessing that Joseph got, or, or that he succeeded in whatever he did, uh, you'll see that come up over and over again. And I think that it begs the question, what has God given into your hand as a blessing through which your house and those in your community can succeed? I'm recording this immediately following one of the worst storms Texas has ever experienced. And my family has, has thought a lot about our blessings and therefore our responsibilities in our household. We have, for our whole lives, taken for granted easily accessible power and water, both of which many families in the Northwest Austin area lost over the last several days. Perhaps Joseph had also taken for granted his position as the favorite child. Maybe he had taken for granted his authority. Maybe he had even taken for granted his freedom. And in losing each of these, Joseph proves himself a faithful steward with the blessings that he does have. How can we prove ourselves as faithful stewards with the many blessings that God has given us? Well, I think one of the ways we can see what's going on here is we can look at these individual instances in which Joseph proved himself a faithful steward. So uh, let's look in turn at the responsibilities Joseph was given in Egypt. We'll start with Potiphar's house, uh, where we're introduced to Potiphar and his wife in Genesis 39. And Joseph is sold as a slave into Potiphar's house. We're not told the exact details of how he goes from being a slave in Potiphar's house to being one of the, the favored slaves in the household, but, but we are told that he ascends from being a lone, lowly slave and is able to gain trust and is able to gain clout uh, while he's in Potiphar's household until he governs every portion of the household. God blessed his hands in Potiphar's house, making all that he did succeed. And so when Joseph is given an opportunity to use his successes and really to use his hands uh, to take advantage of Potiphar's wife, Joseph refuses. I imagine all he's thinking about is, how could I use the blessing given by God to me and use that blessing to take advantage of Potiphar's wife? However, it's not always that simple. We can be faithful stewards, and yet our stewardship may not be seen by those in authority. 
And Joseph and garments have not gotten along uh, throughout his entire uh, life story. First, uh, the the coat that he was wearing that his brothers showed to his father uh, that they had doused in goat blood, uh, being used to uh, perpetuate a narrative that Joseph had died. And now Potiphar's wife takes his garment from him to frame him, to be able to tell his master you know, look, this Hebrew slave came in, tried to take off his clothes and have his way with me. And uh, I started to scream and he ran. And look, I've got the the, the garment to prove it. So um, what Potiphar does is what any master would do, right? He throws Joseph into prison. And yet even in prison, Joseph flourishes. He finds a way to be a faithful steward of of the the prisoners that he gets put in authority over and he even wins the trust of the the chief of the prisoners the prison keeper to the point where he is given a special assignment when pharaoh gets unhappy with his cupbearer and his baker and chucks them in this prison in this pit is what it's called a reference back to when joseph's brothers threw him in a pit well he notices that they don't feel super hot one morning and, and asks them what's wrong. And when they talk about their dreams, uh, it's, it's important to know that at this time in Egypt, dream interpretation was considered to be a science. You needed formal training. Egyptians would train for years at what are called houses of life in order to acquire the skills necessary for interpreting dreams. But Joseph tells the cupbearer and the baker, look, God has control over all mysteries. And, uh, you know, God will give me the interpretation of your dreams. And uh, so God does. And, and Joseph is able to share with the cupbearer and the baker what's going on. time in Egypt, it's important to note that Joseph regularly is a little bit presumptuous. This is keeping in character with the person Joseph was, uh, where we met him at the very beginning of the narrative, where one of the first things he says is how he dreamed a dream and then goes and tells his brothers, his uh, father, about all of uh, these things symbolizing them bowing down to him in his dream. That's a little bit presumptuous. It takes someone with uh, a little bit of an ego, someone who's maybe a little bit spoiled to be willing to say something like that. Um, and, and Joseph continues to do this in Egypt. Um, he, he presumes that God has blessed him with the gift of interpreting dreams when he mentions to the Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker, hey, dream interpretation is from God. And then he goes and says, now tell me your dreams. And then, so the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. R remember, uh, one of the theme ideas here is remembrance and recognition. The cupbearer forgets about Joseph, does not remember him uh, for a couple of years until Pharaoh has these dreams. And then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And then Joseph comes in, uh, Pharaoh summons him. And after Pharaoh tells Joseph the dream, Joseph again, is a little bit presumptuous here. And instead of just interpreting the dream for Pharaoh, Joseph goes all in. 
you can think of Joseph as perhaps an aggressive chess player. He's someone who likes to gamble a little bit. He's someone who, who feels confident in his own ability and in his own skill. And so instead of just interpreting Pharaoh's dream, telling him, hey, there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, he goes so far as to advise Pharaoh about what exactly Pharaoh should do. And in each circumstance, when Joseph presumes, his presumption is exactly what's needed. Uh, this interaction he has with Pharaoh has maybe the best outcome that could have happened, where uh, Joseph suggests, hey, why don't you consider finding someone wise, someone in whom the spirit of God is, and trust that person to disperse the grains, to tax the Egyptians, and to make sure you survive the years of famine. Well, Joseph has just proven himself someone in whom the spirit of God is, is present and active. But Joseph is not just aggressive uh, in these situations. He's also shrewd. He's careful with his language. Instead of calling on the particular name of his father's God, El Shaddai, uh, which is often what God is referred to when, when, uh, it's, when God is talked about as the God of Jacob, Joseph uses the more generic and easier for the polytheistic Egyptians to swallow Elohim. Elohim is a word that, that refers to uh, sort of the, the pantheon of God. And Elohim is often, um, often translated as God in our Bible translations. Uh, rightly so. It's, it's sort of like our word God. It, it could mean God or gods. Um, and Elohim is one of those funky words in Hebrew that uh, the, the singular and the plural are the same. Sort of like when we say the word pants. Um, a pair of pants is just one set of pants. But um, so when you're talking about the plural and the singular, they, they take the same form. It's the same with Elohim. So Joseph is clever in how he approaches Pharaoh. He's clever in how he approaches Egypt and how he approaches uh, a system of belief and people who hold a system of belief that's a little different from his own. And it causes me to wonder, how do we uh, look for ways to build bridges with other people. Joseph is actively avoiding conflict on certain things. Uh, he doesn't need to have a conflict over polytheism or monotheism. He just needs the Egyptians to trust that in him is the spirit of God. And if they can trust that, well, they can call God whatever they want uh, as long as, as they trust the God of Joseph. We as Christians sometimes can be a little bit more pointy than Joseph chose to be here. And I think it's to our detriment. We can get so involved in culture wars, so involved in trying to make sure that other people uh, uh, accept the, the traditional Christian position on same-sex relationships or accept a, a certain position on abortion, that we can miss the many ways we can work together with nonprofits, with governmental organizations for the good of many people. As I mentioned earlier, in, uh, here in Austin, Texas, we're going through a lot where people are without power. People are without water. And if Christians restricted ourselves to making sure that we were only working with those who believed the same things we did, well, we wouldn't do a lot of good. We need to find ways of building bridges, building bridges that, that uh, are based on our faith, but also are based on the commands that God gives us 
to care for the oppressed and to have mercy on those who need it. So we've seen a little bit of the story of Joseph leading up to his brothers coming down into Egypt. Uh, Joseph uh, has been blessed in all he does. Um, and and he, he interprets dreams um, and, and he presumes and he does stuff with a little bit of manipulation involved. This is his father's spirit coming through in him. And even with his brothers, uh, he has a little bit of manipulation that he gets into. But let's go back to Joseph's father for a minute, because Joseph's dad is a little bit of a woe is me person. We talked a little bit about this last week, where where Jacob is clinging to everything he has. This is very much in character for the heel grabber that Jacob holds on. He has usurped his brother's position as firstborn. He's stolen the blessing. He has a ton of things that he could be grateful for, but instead of enjoying them, he clings to them to the point where he's so morose when he thinks Joseph dies. He's um, inconsolable when uh, his sons need to take Benjamin down to Egypt. And I think that, again, this, this gets at Jacob's uh, sort of underdeveloped emotional side. He's been so strategic and so shrewd about getting what he needs that he hasn't seen people as anything other than objects. And we can see this a little bit in how his firstborn Reuben offers to, to care for Benjamin. Uh, this is in, uh, I believe, chapter uh, 43, of, of Genesis, where Reuben tells Jacob, hey, if something happens to Benjamin, you can kill my sons. It's like, that's not helpful, Reuben. But Reuben, maybe following after his dad, sees his sons as sort of bartering chips. Whereas Judah uh, takes a completely different tack. Judah says, I'll personally ensure Benjamin's safety. Maybe Reuben has only known what it means to seek power, whereas Judah has personally experienced the grief of losing two children. Uh, even though Ur and Onan were wicked folks, um, you mourn your kids uh, when something happens that shouldn't to them. And so Judah, his strategy works a little bit better than Reuben's. Now, Joseph cares for his only full brother, the un, the other son of Rachel. Uh, Joseph cares desperately for Benjamin. And, and one of the things that Joseph does with this manipulation is he's trying to ensure that his brothers, after getting rid of Joseph, didn't get rid of Benjamin also. There may be uh, some uh, psychological work that Joseph is doing and trying to read into some of what his brothers were planning, where maybe they thought, hey, if we get rid of Joseph and we get rid of Benjamin, then uh, we can solidify our grasp on uh, the, the, the father's stuff because neither of the favored wives' sons will still be around. And I think that this is perhaps the first time I've begun to understand what Joseph is doing with all this cloak and dagger manipulation. Whenever I've read the Joseph story earlier in my life, I always just thought it was Joseph kind of being petty and getting back at his brothers, uh, holding, you know, Simeon ransom and uh, making sure that there was a little bit of drama in uh, whether his brothers would, would get what they need or not. But in trying to read this story through Joseph's eyes, my brothers tried to kill me because I was the favored son of my father's favorite wife. Maybe they'll try and kill my only full brother 
Benjamin next. Uh, with this lens on, Joseph's actions make far more sense. He needs his brothers to bring Benjamin to him in order for him to ensure Benjamin's health. And then he places the goblet framing Benjamin, places the goblet in his sack to see how the brothers will respond to an opportunity to reject, to be rid of the other favored brother. And what he gets is something beautiful. Judah, the one who came up with the idea 15 to 20 years previously to sell Joseph into slavery, advocates on Benjamin's behalf. This is a stunning 180 degree turn, a, a, just a, a, an unpredicted about face on, on Judah's behalf. Judah speaks on behalf of Benjamin, offering to be in chains himself if it means allowing Benjamin to go free. Judah has done the hard work of accepting the fact that his father favors Benjamin and likely will not favor Judah. And, you know, that's okay. That's who my dad is. It can be really hard working through that sort of stuff with your family of origin, and Judah is able to do this. And throughout this series of events, Judah really takes on the mantle of leader of the brothers, a mantle that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have all proven themselves unworthy to carry. And it's not that Judah is a stellar person. You may remember his dalliance with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Rather, Judah, despite his flaws, finds a way against all odds to keep the family together. In other words, he remembers what could have been torn asunder. And this is the idea behind the Joseph story, is Joseph was sent down to Egypt by his brothers, and yet by doing so, he saved lives. He remembered. He, he was the blessing that God promised through Abraham for all the nations. He is a, a pre-runner of the messianic promise in which God will ensure that all nations are blessed through God's son. And in seeing this remembrance, this recognition happening at multiple levels, we too are called to remember the covenant that God has made with us. So as you spend some time with scripture this week, I want you to think about how can you do the work you need to do to remember, to recognize the covenant that God has made with you and to show Christ's light to the world. That's all for Genesis chapter uh, 39 through 44. This next week, we'll look at Genesis 45, all the way through the end of the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis 50. And it is my prayer that as you read scripture, you would be blessed. May God bless you in your reading of scripture.